to Architecting. I'm your host, Angela Mazzi. You made it. This is the landing pad for raw honesty about connecting your career with your purpose. I'm going to give you the tools you need to be an unapologetic advocate for yourself and others, because if you're here, you believe that the space we surround ourselves in matters and you're committed to project by project building a better world for all of us. If you're with me, let's get architecting. The other thing too is that opportunities present themselves sometimes at really inopportune times. And it might be that you need to make that bold decision to change your course even though you weren't intending to. I think that's been one of the biggest keys for me. I feel like I've reinvented my career every few years. Hey there, bright lights. I am so, so excited to share with you today's guest. As you know, I'm really careful about how I do interviews. I don't just profile other architects at other firms and be all, ta-da, yeah, look what they did. There are lots of podcasts that focus on spotlighting architects. I do something a little different with my interviews. The people that I bring on, and they're not all architects, they have a story of grit. They have a story that is all about the outlaw energy of questioning the status quo, of not just accepting the premise and of doing their career their way, because that's the only way to really have success, is to do what matters to you and to be really good at it and see that it's making a difference. That said, I am super excited to have you hear Tim Hawk on today's episode. He's a nationally recognized architecture practice leader and educator. He has really worked throughout his career to elevate design quality, which is part of what earned him fellowship in the American Institute of Architects. You know, what I love about Tim's career trajectory is that he didn't stop there. He continues to be involved locally in Columbus at the state level and nationally. He is currently the national treasurer for the AIA, and he's also served within the American Institute of Architecture students, which helped to earn him the 2020 AIA Ohio Mentor Award. His story with his own firm is really interesting as well because he started at entry level, worked his way up to president, and his leadership and vision and bold style have helped elevate everyone else in the firm too. He's grown the practice tenfold and really focuses on mentoring his staff and helping to evolve their practice. So I think you will really be inspired. Let's take a listen to what Tim has to say. Hi, Tim. It's good to see you. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hi, Angela. Thanks for having me. This is great. I am really excited. I know a little bit about your story as an architect. You have really pursued an interesting path, become a firm owner, 
an educator and a real leader in the community and the AIA. So tell us your story. How did you get here? What were some of the things that you encountered along the way that were sort of your moments of truth? Sure. So uh, I'm from a, a very kind of simple background, and I really had no exposure to any architects growing up, none. And um, I started down a pathway to become an engineer. And I remember distinctly sitting in my mom and dad's house, you know, going through the uh, catalogs for different schools, trying to figure out which engineering I might like. And it just was not resonant with me. I knew that I could not do it. But that's where I was headed. And I, uh, so I applied and I uh, came to Ohio State. Interestingly, at the orientation, Ohio State has the School of Architecture nested within the College of Engineering, which was really beneficial to me because I saw that and I said, I'm interested in that. There was something about it that just sort of resonated with me at that time. And looking back on it, I um, had done all of the things that a lot of people who are in architecture were interested in. As a kid, I sat around and drew house plans and I liked to play cars and make cities and, you know, all of these things that we all do. So uh, I had the good fortune of being able to transfer my major to be an architecture major at that point. The catch is that when I went home and I told my parents, they were not pleased. Uh oh. And my father had a relationship with the dean at Kent State University, and he golfed with him. And the dean told him that architects do not have steady incomes. There's challenges with your career, and uh, it's it's hard to you know, make consistent money and a good life through architecture. And my dad was very concerned that I was going to take this path because he thought I had a lot of potential. And the reason engineering was so attractive to him, it seemed like it had more stability. Interestingly, I started off in architecture being warned about it. And so I have had a career where I have, in some ways, in many ways, been always trying to improve it because I was fearful from the beginning that it was not going to be st stable and that it wasn't going to be something that could sustain my career. That's so funny because I was leaning towards going to college to be an artist and my mother uh -huh. was very afraid of that and she's yeah. the one like you said I did all those things as a kid too she's the one that connected the dots and had me toward yeah. architecture firm so she saw it as more stable. Yeah it's it's almost like a happy coincidence and the the instant I got into the uh, you know the studio programs and the drawing I was so into it. I was just head over heels in love. The other thing too, is I found my people. Mm. I found my tribe, right? So I found all of these young people who I could have something in common with. And I grew up in, you know, an Appalachian uh, County in Ohio. And I was very uh, well liked in high school and I had a lot of friends, but when I found the architecture students, I had, people I loved, right? And that's the other thing that I think drives me. I really like you. I like other architects. Just naturally want to be around architects. And I think that's what's kind of driven me as well. I'm very proud to be a part of the group. I find all architects so interesting. 
That's the best thing about architecture. The worst thing is that there is not a pluralistic definition of what an architect is or can be. And I think that's one of the reasons I lean into leadership. Mm. I want to provide opportunities for us to discuss more diversity within our profession, how we can find who we are and be who we are instead of trying to fit into a box that's defined by us through historic expectations or the construct of the profession that was. So to me, it's about the people, it's about resonance, uh, it's about me feeling comfortable and empowered within this space. You know, and then after you practice, my goodness, there's so many rewards. You really find your sweet spot, you get through school. What was it like in the early stages of your career? Did it meet your expectations or were there things that surprised you? Oh no, I thought my first summer I was gonna scratch my eyes out, Angela. I mean, I really hated it. I, I mean, I hate to admit that, but my first few months I thought, what did I do? I, I was in a position where I was um, working as an entry-level draftsman for a very prestigious firm. And I just felt like it was not allowing me to use my skills or engage in the way that I wanted to engage. Look, I'm an outgoing person. I want to be around people. I wanted to gain access to clients. I wanted to be able to talk to consultants. I wanted to be able to understand the viewpoint of a contractor. And when I entered the profession, you sat at a drafting table and you did, you did, you know, production work for years until you were able to, um, to move on from that. And it was a very linear, long, methodical process. So, um, but I knew in the back of my mind that that's not, I knew that the profession could be something else. And that's another thing that fueled me to make it change uh, or to help try to be a part of the change. Immediately decided I needed to go back and get my master's degree. <laughs> and I, I worked for about a year and a half and I um, went back to get my master's degree. And it was a really great decision for me. Against the advice of my employer, by the way. What were you hoping to do? Just sort of hit a reset button or acquire a different skill set? I wanted to elevate my ability to think more broadly. Mm. So I found what the work I was doing very limiting. And I, I wanted to be able to have a broader impact. And I wanted to provide more versatility for myself in a long-term career. I've always been sort of a futuristic type person. You know, when you do those personality tests, that's one of my top things is futurism. And uh, so I do look ahead and I kind of plan and I dream a bit. And so for me, going back to get a graduate degree at that point in my career seemed like the best thing to do because I could elevate my game. And it changed my entire trajectory, just completely upside down in those two years that I went to graduate school. So it was a good decision for me. I always love these stories where someone makes a bold move because it takes a lot of courage to walk away from where you are and to say, yeah. okay, you know, this is stable and there's growth, but 
it's not what I want or it's not happening fast enough and I need to do something bigger and bolder. Well, I did it twice. I did that. um, So I got married in graduate school, which everyone said was a silly thing. I'm still married. I love her to death. So I'm glad I did it. We moved to Chicago and I had my first real job in Chicago and I got laid off after two years. Mm. There was a recession. I got laid off and I looked around and I thought, what am I doing? I don't like this. So there I was uh, in a firm where the patron, with the, the patrons of architecture were all very, very, very wealthy people. And it seemed to me like the solutions we were trying to bring forth were based upon superficial design response. So, you know, how, how beautiful is the tile that you're using in the lobby and how much are we spending on the stone on the outside of the building? It wasn't a very thoughtful approach to design and I became disillusioned again. And so I went back to school again. And here I thought, maybe I want to teach because I like the realm of ideas. So I went to get a second graduate degree in the history of architecture and art at the University of Illinois in Chicago. I got engaged in that for about six months and I realized I really missed practice. The firm that I was at invited me back. They, they, they offered me a return job because the economy had recovered. So I went back on my own terms because now I realized I had this other game going where I, you know, I was in school, I was becoming educated. And if you want me to come back, I'd be happy to. Here are my requests. I'd like to come back and be able to teach and go to school and be flexible. And they agreed to all of that. And it was fabulous. Uh, So I finished my coursework and those different explorations helped bring it all full circle for me. And I decided I really enjoyed practice and I leaned into it. Wow. But I, I love that getting that clarity allowed you to approach your career from a point of view of claiming what you wanted instead of taking what was offered. There's a lot of lack-based thinking, a lot of sense of if I don't do this, what will I do? So I love that you were able to say, I could take it or leave it. And, yeah. and I know and now Angela, what I want. I didn't have any safety net at all. My parents would not have supported me. They were old fashioned. They didn't want me to study architecture anyway. That's not the reason. They just, they wanted us to be adults and self-reliant. And so I knew I had no safety net. Additionally, I was married. So I felt an obligation to help support my wife because I had a partner. She was able to help me go back to school because she was able to help support me financially since she was working. And we've done that for one another. So I had the benefit of having a life partner who is supportive, but I also was taking a big risk for both of us because I didn't have a safety net. I didn't even have a savings account. Mm, wow. Yeah. But but I think it's great, though, that you could still see that taking the risk and asking for what you really wanted was better than settling. Yeah. 
ultimately, and a lot of people do that. It feels counterintuitive, but when you're clear about what you want and you're willing to ask for it, you're always going to be better off. Yeah. And the other thing too, is that opportunities present themselves sometimes at really inopportune times. And it might be that you need to make that bold decision to change your course, even though you weren't intending to. I think that's been one of the biggest keys for me. I feel like I've reinvented my career every few years. Uh, I saw a seminar a few years, I cannot remember who the presenter was, but it was offered at a national AIA conference. And the speaker suggested that we do that every five years. So we naturally go through a process of discovery and reinvention. We get bored with where we are and we, we need to make decisions to advance ourselves. And we do that. You can go laterally into some other endeavor. You can decide to move out of the profession. You can decide to lean into a specific aspect of it and uh, maybe change the position you're in or change a firm or change your geography. But oftentimes I have found that I, I basically have five-year clumps in relationship to how I've gone through and practiced. And they're really shaped a lot by the experiences that I have, the relationships that I've developed and the people that I've met and how they've been able to provide me the ability to be introspective, my interactions with those other architects. What are some of the highlights of that that got you to where you are today? One of the things that's been most rewarding is you can come across a situation where you have a thousand things to do and there's this really uh, seemingly important thing that um, is sort of calling for you and you say, I can't do that. I cannot do it. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I've learned through some very early experiences because of my frustration that if I take that, if it's telling me it's a gut instinct that that's what I should do, it seems counterintuitive. And I think that's the biggest life lesson for me is I'll do it. And a lot of times it was service, opportunities to serve. When you felt like you had so much to do to finish a project, but someone's asking you if you'd offer a perspective in relationship to something at the AIA. So here in Columbus, you know, would you be willing to sit on our design awards committee because you're a leading designer in the community or an up and coming designer? Would you? And I'm thinking, I can't do that. I have all of this to do. I've got children, I've got a wife, et cetera. When I did it, every time it would change my game in a positive way. I'm so glad you said that because I am always spouting off. You make time for the things that matter and you make excuses for everything else. And I'm yes. too busy is really just code for that's not my priority. So I right. love that you went there. Yeah. I also had another moment in my life that was really profound advice I got from former director of the School of Architecture at Ohio State, Ann Pendleton-Julian. So she's a fabulous uh, and to me, a rather inspiring architect. And we served together on the AIA Columbus board for a period of two years where she was representing the educators. And I was, I think I was the president maybe. Anyway, I was at one of those moments of being overwhelmed 
And we just happened to get together to catch up and we went to lunch. And uh, I told her, I really feel like I have to stop doing X, I have to stop doing Y, and I need to focus on this because as a firm leader, I need to prioritize getting our ship in order, you know, getting everything organized. And she looked at me and she said, why are you denying what you are? I mean, I know you, Tim, you have a passion. You have so much energy to give. Why would you not do that? All that other stuff will get figured out. And I said, do you really think I can do that? She said, yeah. So if, if, if you feel like you're getting all these people saying, don't do this and trying to handle you and put you in a position, go with your gut, go with what you want to do. And that was really great advice. So I've leaned into what I feel is best and it has made the other areas of my career so much easier. It's hard to describe. Like you, you think this is the right thing to do. I need to, I mean, I'll, I'll make an example. As a firm leader, I need to go home and review the financial uh, records for the firm. But there's someone asking you to attend a design presentation. I need to do the financial records for the firm is what my brain is telling me. My heart wants to go to the design presentation. So what I've started doing is going with my heart. And I go to the design presentation. Guess what? I get such energy and clarity through that presentation that my focus to review the financial records allows me to do it in half the time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I find that all the time. And it's a common topic on the show and in the architecting community in general. So I really am so happy that you are sharing the similar story that mm -hmm. when we recharge ourselves, rather than taking time away from all the work we think we have to do, we actually can do it faster and better because of having taken that time. And the other thing I've learned is there is a lot of people who tell you, you need to let go. And I never understood what that meant. But when you go with your heart, you have to let go of things. And what it allows is allows for other people in your life to step in and show their strengths. And they begin to flourish because you're giving them space. I, I received a pretty prestigious award a couple of weeks ago from Ohio State. It was an alumni award. And as part of my remarks that I made, I did say, you know, I understand I take up a lot of space in the room. And by recognizing that, I've realized I need to make room for other people. And sometimes that means stepping out of the way. So one of the things that's fueled my progress in the AIA is I've wanted to keep giving and engaging, but I felt I need to get out of the way so that others can serve in the role that I was serving in. And so I've gone from this type of service to another role and found fulfillment in that other role and then moved on to yet a different role. And each of those roles were a different type of service and they've given me energy in some way to help shape my path. 
I wanted to touch a little bit on the AIA because I know you started locally in Columbus, mm-hmm. just getting involved, and you've then progressed to state level offices and are now at a national level doing lots of really exciting things. But I think sometimes people have very mixed feelings about Mm -hmm. the AIA and whether there's value to membership. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that and the inside track on how to make the AIA work for you. So I have to tell you about my first AIA meeting. So I had moved to Columbus and I went to an AIA meeting and I um, had a very bad experience. To me, it felt like a group of people who were complacent, not forward thinking, uh, interested in maintaining the status quo in the profession. And there were very few people who were younger like me. And that actually made me have more of a thirst (laughs) to help lead change. I tell people, and this is so arrogant, but I tell people I wanted to make it cool, right? Like I was so cool that I wanted to make it cool. Of course you did. Um, Yeah, absolutely, right? So what I have found in the AIA is that it is a mixed bag, right? There can be moments where I feel I'm part of a bureaucracy or that I'm part of a machine. That's very few moments. Most of the time, I feel so empowered by the people I'm able to meet and learn from, especially when you diversify your service. One of my most rewarding service opportunities in the AIA was through the knowledge communities. In uh, the beginning of my career, I didn't have a real path for what I wanted to focus on. I was a strong design student, uh, and I actually was serving in a role of being a designer and a project architect, and I had the ability to interface with clients and enjoyed that, et cetera. And through the firm I worked at, which I now lead, I started working on corporate workplaces for these dot-com or uh, tech-based organizations. I also started working on religious projects. So what I was doing is I was like supporting each of these partners and they had their own specialty areas. So I was able to gain experience that was pretty diverse, working on different types of projects with different types of clients. And I quickly found my value was in corporate workplace. And um, so in 2008, I joined the, um, was able to join the um, national advisory group for the interior architecture committee and through this committee i met amazing architects from across the country so this this group was made up of architects from washington and chicago and los angeles and indianapolis and uh, texas and all, all different types of places and they all had their own unique experiences and the topic was design And the topic was, how can we make space within the profession for interior-focused architects? And what's the unique knowledge that's required for these types of people? How do you distinguish yourselves? How do you work through the specific challenges that come? You know this because of your healthcare focus, right? When you begin to have a 
a certain type of practice that you're interested in, there's certainly tricks of the trade. And so for me, my AIA service, I have found bureaucracy and things that I want to solve, right? Governance can be kind of cumbersome. You know, if you're the president of AI Columbus, you're dealing with a lot of issues that are not design oriented. But I found that I, I have found that the majority of my time and service there, I have learned and gained so much and been able to evolve my career and influence the career of others through the interactions that I have. And so for me, it's a huge win. In the end, it's a huge win. So what is different about being a locally based leader versus mm-hmm. a nationally based leader? And how does that help you help other architects? So you know how your family has a certain perception of what you are because of their familiarity? I would say the same thing is true about you as an architect. Within the community that you're in, in Cincinnati, you have a reputation. I have a reputation in Columbus. And there's a frame that's established for you. When you serve at the national level, it's a tabula rasa. You're not in a frame. You can shape your own um, experience. It's given me confidence to be what I want to be and not what I'm defined to be in the community that I'm in. I think it's been helpful for our community as well, right? So like I can be more than what I'm supposed to be because I'm able to get energy from these other activities and that's able to help me transform. I've also been able to find people who are modeling practice, behavior and practice protocol that's very unique and different than I have found in my peers here in Columbus. An amazing design community in Columbus. I have lots of dear friends and lots of respect for most of the architects in Columbus. It increases through the exposure that I've had to these powerful architects from across the country. And I've been able to gain access to viewpoints earlier maybe than I would have through a more limited interface with architects here in my backyard. And for me, I think part of it is I've always been a practitioner in a smaller firm or medium-sized firm. So if you're a practitioner in a global practice, that's a little different. You know, you get, you get naturally interaction with your peers in the New York office or your peers in LA. When you're in a 30-person firm in Columbus, you're interacting with that fixed group of individuals and your peers in the community. It just brings such diversity when you can step out of that. Maybe some people in our audience work as solo practitioners on small projects. Others work at small to medium-sized firms. Some do work at the big firms, but what advice would you give regarding AIA and those who are not even sure it's worth being a member? What, what's the secret code here? I think that you need to recognize that you are part of a profession and it's hard. Being an architect is hard. If you isolate yourself, you will only be able to achieve a certain level of success and it'll be a constant struggle. And I know this because I would pull away and go back into a more 
cocooned sort of experience. And I would find that it was not helping me. The reason I would encourage, especially small practitioners to participate in the AIA is to give you the energy to allow you to sustain your career. It is rough in a, in a, in a bad way and in a good way. Architecture is really rewarding, but it's also challenging. I think that the AIA can help you find who you are, help you redefine yourself or um, give you witness to others who are practicing in very unique ways that you never thought were possible. And it might give you the courage to take that step that's so powerful. You've probably heard the saying, we reach for the highest branch we can see. So when you have way showers, you realize that things are even possible that you may never have thought about. And not only are they possible, but you have a roadmap because you see how that person did it. Yeah. And if I were to give advice to listeners who are emerging talent, I think you need to lose the definition of what you thought an architect was. And one of the things that I've been able to get through my AIA service is the courage to shape a practice and a career that's way different than what I originally thought it should be. Mm. And for me, in my practice, it's driven success. It's made us more profitable. It's made us more resilient when the economy changes. It's allowed us to have more diversity within our firm. And I feel enriched through that because I've been able to allow others to help shape the firm. And I, I just feel it gives me courage. The AIA, the people I meet through the AIA, give me courage. So last question. Yes. You have certainly been a mentor to many people over the years, and you've seen things through the lens of a national organization educating of architects and through practice and now as a firm leader. What do you see is the biggest thing that holds people back from being able to do what you've done and feel fulfilled and defining success on their terms? I think that the uh, educational process of becoming an architect can create a false construct within our minds where we have a definition of what success is. And what I have found through mentorship and interfacing, I was on the national uh, board of the American Institute of Architecture Students. One of the most rewarding things I did, I was confronted on a consistent basis about students who were frustrated by what they perceived practice to be and how they felt they were not going to fit in. They felt like they'd wasted their effort because they felt that they could not fit within that box. And so to me, we need to begin to help our uh, emerging professionals recognize that they have a unique voice and they have the ability to create change in their communities in a positive way 
through the power of that unique voice. I think if we can all look at practice in that way, we'll be better off. It raises a really great point, which is success isn't about checking the boxes on somebody else's list. It is about what you've really described as a through line of your entire career, which is being in alignment with what you're passionate about. And if you do that, if you follow your heart, like you said, and you stop doing things because you think you're supposed to, that's where the magic happens. There is one caveat I'll, I'll throw in here. One of the other things I've learned and I often share with emerging professionals is we have to recognize there are patrons of architecture. Our society needs certain types of services. They create the need. There's a consumer demand for certain types of services. So if I'm passionate about something that no one cares about, that's not gonna work. So you do have to find passion in an area where there is a need. It cannot be your passion that you try to impose on people. You have to find a passion in an area where there's a need. If you do that and then get the skills associated with that area, I don't know how you can lose because you'll be working in an area you're passionate about. There'll be a need that's being served in our society and you'll have the skills and you'll grow and you'll just flourish in that area. We need to recognize there has to be a market demand and a need for the services that you are providing. Thank you for adding that in, but it really does describe this trifecta of things that converge and just keep building. As long as you keep being open to your own growth and evolution and keep being willing to say yes and give generously of your time and your talent. Yeah. Yep. Well, Tim, thank you so much for giving us these great insights. How can people find you if they would like to stay in touch? So I'm on uh, Twitter at Architect Hawk, and you can always uh, follow me on Instagram at uh, Timothy Hawk, or just email me, um, thawk at wsastudio.com. I'd be happy to hold a conversation with anyone. Great. Um, we, we definitely appreciate that. And everyone, if you got a valuable insight out of this, share it on one of these social media platforms and tag Tim so that he knows that you heard this and what resonated with you. Um, that's the best way to say thank you. Yeah, that's a great idea. Thank you, Angela. And thank you for having me tonight. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure. I always love our conversations and I knew you would have just some great, great things to share with our audience. So I am so glad that we made the time to do this. Thanks a lot. you for listening. You made it all the way to the end of the episode, which means you are committed to making yourself a priority so you can be empowered to do the work you were called to do in the world. How amazing is that? If you would like even more content just like this, please remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. I would so appreciate it if you left an honest review too. 
Hey, I want you to know I'm here for you beyond the boundaries of this podcast. You can follow me on social media at Architecting Podcast or visit architectingpodcast.com to download some great free resources. Take care, everyone, and stay inspired. (music) 